It's 2022, which means it's a renewal year and you need CEUs. 30 if you're in South Carolina, and three of those have to be on ethics, jurisprudence, and whatever else goes in that category. Look, the year's going by fast, and you can knock out all those requirements with a MedBridge subscription, and you can get 40% off with the discount code BETTERFASTERPOD. I have a friend named Shelly, and she's a little lazy. Her words, not mine. She hasn't done any Con Ed over the past year and a half until she got her subscription set up. And what she does is she just puts modules on her phone while she watches 90 Day Fiance. Great show, by the way. Is she learning anything? No. But is she getting the local governing bodies off her bat? Yes. Your subscription also includes NSCA credits, OCS certification prep courses, patient education, home exercise programs, EMR integration. There's tons and tons of resources. Again, use the discount code BETTERFASTERPOD to get 40% off your individual subscription. That's the best price that MedBridge offers, okay? Only the best for our listeners. Now enjoy the episode. Happy Monday, everyone. Brandon here from the Better Faster Podcast. In today's episode, Josh and I talk about dry needling. It's still a bit of a hot topic in the rehab and clinical settings. Specifically, we discuss the differences between acupuncture and dry needling, proposed mechanisms for how it works, and how we use it in the clinic. If you can, please take an extra 30 seconds to go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That's what bumps us up in the rankings and helps us reach more people. And if you have any questions or topic you want us to discuss, send us a message or leave it as part of your review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Better Faster Podcast. Brandon and I are going to tackle dry needling today. Brandon, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. About yourself? Can't complain. We're in the middle of the, the open right now, which is always a stressful time for any coach or athlete. So uh, this is the end of week two, three more weeks to go, and then uh, ready for a little bit of a break. Yeah, I can imagine. That's, um, it's, it's been uh, pretty, pretty cool so far. I've liked the first two workouts. Yeah, I've enjoyed uh, them. A little different. I mean, it always is. You never know what to expect, but... Um, no, it's been, it's been good. Luckily, knock on wood, we haven't had any injuries in the clinic from any athletes participating. So hopefully we can keep it that way. Yeah, I think the overall volume for the vast majority of people doing these workouts has been pretty low. You know, like this week, you're doing 55 dumbbell front squats, which, you know, for the average CrossFitter or somebody who's training for this, it's not a ton of squat volume. Um, and then there is a max lift at the end. So there always is some injury risk uh, when you're doing a maximal type effort under fatigue there. Um, but thankfully, everybody's been uh, been okay with that. And then that first workout, there were um, you know, a fair amount of toes to bar if you got far enough. Um, that, you know, between for most people averaging anywhere from seven to 10 rounds, probably uh, it's not any kind of volume that they haven't handled in training since that really ended up becoming a ton of time on the rower. So um, I think that the construction of them was, was, was nice. It made it difficult, but it, the, the overall volume of specific types of contractions was, was controlled pretty well. Yeah, for sure. I think the, the worst you're going to see so far is just blowing up biceps from 18.1 from mm -hmm. all the toes of bar. So not bad. And other news, I actually just signed up for an upcoming local CrossFit competition. I'm really excited about that. It, uh, it definitely helps having that finish line on the calendar. It keeps me motivated, keeps my head in the game. And yeah. uh, I'm counting on CPT to get me to the podium. <laughs> yeah, we hope so, man. Um, I know you and, and your partner, Kyle's been doing really well in the Open, too. He's going to be ready, too. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a good time. It's, uh, I think it was like a, a quote – mandatory unquote requirement for vertex employees i think we got three of us signed up so it's there you go that, you know, that's gonna be great man i'm excited to come watch that one um but anyway getting into our topic today we're gonna talk about dry needling dry needling is a, a fun topic to get into in my opinion because uh, a lot of people you know 
they either haven't had it or they don't really understand what's happening or, you know, they, um, you know, there's kind of a debate on, you know, is this PT? Is this acupuncture? You know, what's going on here? Why did, why did the two professions sometimes not get along when it comes to it? So um, first off, Brandon, uh, can you tell our listeners, you know, what is dry needling? Yeah. So most basic definition of dry needling is that it's the use of monofilament needles. They're basically, they're, they are acupuncture needles. And mm -hmm. That means they're not hollow bore. Hollow bore needles are what you get when you get an injection. So that would, by definition, be wet needling. Mm -hmm. So we're going to insert these in a lot of different types of tissue, be it ligaments, tendons, subcutaneous tissue. We'll do it around nerves, actually around nerve vascular bundles. And we use it for a wide variety of conditions. I mean, it's everything from tendinopathies to cervicogenic headaches to um, plantar fasciitis. That's, that's my favorite. TMJ dysfunction. We did an episode about that a while back. Um, Hip bursitis, I mean, you name it, we, we, see, we treat a lot of things with it. And there's a lot of different types. You know, they're, they're the most commonly researched, I think, is trigger point needling. There's, there's perineural, going around nerves, peritendin. There's even perivascular, where you intentionally go around blood vessels. So that's, that's a, it encompasses a lot of different things. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, I like how you acknowledge these are, you know, acupuncture needles. But can you talk about how this type of use or what you're using these needles for is different from acupuncture. Can you talk about the differences there? Yeah. So just again, basic definition, acupuncture can only be performed by a licensed acupuncturist, at least in South Carolina and in most states. Um, acupuncture from what I understand is based or rooted in traditional Chinese medicine. So they're going to be needling based on things like meridians, chi, yin and yang, so on and so forth. And, and that stuff I have tremendous respect for, but it's, it's not what I'm trained in. Um, you know, we can get into this a little bit later about proposed mechanisms, but essentially whenever we insert needle into tissue, we have a pretty decent working understanding about what happens at the tissue level, what happens at the cellular level, what happens to the brain based on functional MRI studies when we put, uh, put needles into certain areas. So that's kind of the, the nutshell uh, differences between the two of them. Okay, so, Kevin, I think it's a good segue into those mechanisms. So when you're putting a needle into someone there, what, kind, what, are, you, what are you hoping to get out of it? What do you think is actually happening? Well, you can really, I guess you can really break it down into, into different types of mechanisms. So there, again, we don't know exactly why it works, but we have a pretty, pretty good set of working theories on the mechanical effects, the biochemical effects, and then even the neuro, neurophysiological effects. I think it's mostly neurophysiological. I think you're affecting the nervous system, which is what we've talked about before with all different types of manual therapies. Um, but I guess, I don't know, I guess you want to start there. Um, yeah, no, I think that's so, a great place to start. So essentially, when you, when you put a needle into tissue, you're going to stimulate these tiny nerve endings that are called nociceptors. And a lot of times, let's say if you stick a needle into a muscle, we'll just use the upper trap, for example, because that's the most common area where we needle and what you see in the research. You're going to elicit a local twitch response where that muscle is basically going to contract, but then it's going to relax. And you know, if you're using that to treat trigger points, it's going to basically break that circuit, that vicious cycle. And a lot of times you can get pain relief or you're going to get some relaxation. Um, from what we understand about that twitch response, it's, it's a spinal reflex. Um, it provides sensory input to the spinal cord. Um, you know, essentially, I think a, a theory that I like, the way I like to explain it is I think that whenever you put a needle into someone's tissue, like, again, that upper trap, you're going to bombard the dorsal horn of the spinal cord with afferent inputs. So that's basically sensory input. And somehow or another, that's going to alter the efferent response. That's basically the motor output, the alpha motor neuron. So basically, you're going to get relaxation, but sometimes you got to fight pain with pain. 
Yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah, introducing another stimulus um, is is huge there. I think it, it goes along with exactly what we talked about last week um, on our cupping episode, all these different things. We're giving another stimulus to the nervous system, which will hopefully change our, our sensation of pain. Right, exactly. Yeah, and and it goes deeper into it. And I mean, you could you could really get into the weeds with the neuroscience, but we know from functional MRIs that it also activates descending pain inhibitory systems, and it's going to light up certain areas of the brain, like the cerebral cortex, hypothalamus, it'll decrease activity of the limbic system. I am certainly not the uh, neuroanatomy expert on that, but there's some really good journals and articles that, that support uh, those theories. Yeah, no, I think uh, I, I completely agree. We're getting some of that research uh, actually in school now. So now needling has been moved into uh, some of our manual therapy curriculum, at least in our program. We're lucky. Again, we talked about Kathy or not or not on this program before. Um, Having her and her abilities and skills as a a professor, uh, we're actually getting it in school. Um, So, you know, I know when you were going through school, it wasn't really taught. So what were some of the other options if you wanted to go learn more about this? um, What kind of courses did you take or, or resources did you use? Yeah, you guys are lucky um, getting in school for sure. That's, uh, I mean, I think end of the day, it, that's really all you need. You need to have a strong background in anatomy so you know where you're putting the needles and where not to put the needles. And mm-hmm. then also just get some hands-on training. Because to be honest with you, the actual act of inserting the needles is, is pretty simple. It's pretty easy. It, it, I think it's actually tougher to do certain types of manual therapy like manipulations and, and things like that from a skill standpoint. But you definitely need to know how not to hurt somebody. But anyways, I, I digress. I actually, when I went through it, I got my training through James Dunning's uh, DNI group, mm-hmm. but to be honest with you, I'm not really a big fan of it. Um, they they sort of promote this model of uh, of dependence, where basically all you need to do is you know manipulate something, then needle it, and the patient's going to be fine. And that's that's definitely a good business model because if that's all you do as a therapist, your patient's going to come back over and over and get it done uh, again because that's that's dependence model. Um, Plus, not to mention, I'm not, I don't know if you've seen the latest headlines about him, but he's actually threatening to sue the APTA. Yeah, um, I didn't see that. I don't, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I don't really like the thought of my membership dues having to go towards APTA's legal defense fund, pay for a yeah. settlement or a frivolous lawsuit. But that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but since then, I've actually gotten the opportunity to learn from Dr. Ma's group. We've actually done some clinical research with them and mm-hmm. secondhand through some therapists that have been kinetic or trained. And I am a big fan of their model because they teach all kinds of techniques that we talked about before, not just trigger point needle. They're going to teach periosteal stuff, perineural, all that, all that. But the big thing is that they're going to combine manual therapy with movement, with exercise, with the test retest. So not only are you going to have a new skill set if you weren't trained in school, but you're going to have a good way to implement the stuff into the clinic with whatever you're already doing um, in the first place. And it's just going to make your treatments more effective. No, I love that, man. Um, trying to get away from that model of dependence is huge. Um, and that's kind of where I wanted to go with this was, uh, how and when you're intervi- you're actually introducing this to your treatment. So uh, I know you talked about plantar fasciitis. So I say, you know, I have a little bout of plantar fasciitis going on and I come to see you, um, you know, you know, is this going to be one of the first things that you do with me? And then we start moving on the same day. Or are we going to, um, you know, how many treatments do you think I'm going to need, you know, just for the say, just on average, I know it's a, it depends question, but can you talk a little bit about like how the, the course of treatment for say that specific diagnosis would go? Yeah, definitely. So I mentioned earlier, that's, that's my favorite place to needle just because it's so effective. I mean, it's 90 plus percent effective with patients I've had in my career since I've been needling that. Um, it, it does depend a lot on how acute or chronic the issue is, but generally I, I am going to needle that. And it's really important in my opinion that you do get the, get the needle right on that medial calcaneal tube where the 
plantar fascia inserts and mm -hmm. you got to do some periosteal pecking. You know, we talked about a little bit earlier about uh, the um, mechanical effects. And one of the things that the needle has been proposed to do is whenever you get it down deep into the tissue and you wind the needle, it actually has been shown to potentially realign fibroblasts. And those are basically the, the cells that produce collagen, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you create a little bit of irritation, create a beneficial inflammatory response, in theory, that's going to speed up the healing response. So yes, we're going to needle that. We are also going to needle above it. You know, that's, the, that's based on the whole regional interdependence thing where, you know, just like if you had a patient that came in for a uh, tennis elbow, regardless of needle and manual therapy exercise, you're not just going to treat the elbow. You're going to treat the wrist, the shoulder, the neck. So same thing with plantar fasciitis. You're going to treat the calf, the knee, sometimes even the hip all the way down to the toes. But um, yes, we are usually going to load that day one or a couple of days later, depending on how tender they are. Um, by the way, that is the most uncomfortable spot to get a needle. Um, oh, yeah. So oh, I, rem actually, I remember <laughs> that's, that's like the, that's like the rite of passage initiation before you stick needles in a patient, you got to take one in your heel. So you know it, what it feels like. <laughs> oh, and it doesn't tickle. <laughs> but yeah. So, um, I mean, it, like I said, needling just like other forms of manual therapy in isolation are not as effective. So we are going to combine that with some eccentric loading, some mobility work, some soft tissue work, whatever the patient needs, running gait analysis. It's just one piece of the puzzle. Okay. Um, now I know there is, when we talk about needling and, um, and billing and reimbursement, um, can you talk about a little bit, since I know you guys are a hybrid clinic, so you do have people coming to see you on insurance and self-pay. Uh, so can you talk about how you incorporate, uh, needling in terms of, uh, you know, with this current reimbursement model, with it not really having its own code? Sure. Yeah. So, um, for whatever reason, uh, we still do not have a, a billing code for a dry needling. So therefore, technically we cannot charge for it. It's, it's, we're not allowed to. Um, so what we basically tell patients is it's an extra 15 bucks. That's the cash rate we've chosen. Um, it's more or less a supply charge. Now, if we do other forms of manual therapy, uh, maybe we'll do some instrument assisted stuff, might crack something, whatever it is, or even just the time that we spend, you know, discussing the proposed mechanism, that kind of thing. Technically, technically you can bill for that. Um, but the actual act of, inserting the needles into the patient, um, you can't bill for. So in a nutshell for our, our insurance patients, it's an extra 15 bucks for our self-pay patients. It's going to be $120 no matter what we do. So we don't charge extra for that. Um, hopefully one day there will be a code for that, but until then we just got to keep doing that. And I think there, there's, there's other clinics around us that do the same thing. Some charge 10, some charge 20, but we just kind of meet right in the middle at 15. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I was lucky enough to get to see you use needles this summer um, in clinic. I know all my classmates were uh, lucky enough to, to experience that because, you know, there are a lot of therapists out there that aren't trained in there, don't feel comfortable doing it, but uh, the results speak for themselves, man. We saw a lot of great results from using this in all different areas. You mentioned um, plantar fasciitis, kneeling that for trap. Um, a ton of our, our low back pain patients did, uh, you know, experience a lot of relief from this too. Uh, we talked about TMJ. That was one of the the coolest things to see in person was to see needling of TMJ. Um, yeah. So I, I, I got lucky getting to see all that, man. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Those needles go deeper than you think with the jaw. <laughs> yeah, dude, it was a little, a little scary at first when I'm watching, it, I'm thinking to myself like, all right, I feel like I know the anatomy well, but just actually seeing it happen um, was definitely a unique experience. Yeah, you get this nice wave of relief when you finally hit that bone, right? Yeah, good, I'm good, yeah. Um, yeah, going to a bony backdrop is all, <laughs> always a nice feeling when you finally get there. All right, I'm all right. Um, yeah. yeah, man, anything, uh, I thought there was a lot of good info in this. Is there any other area that you really wanted to talk about? Well, 
we mentioned earlier that I actually want to talk about safety a little bit too. Okay. Um, yeah, for sure. Because that's whenever patients call and they haven't had dry needle before, that's the first question they got is, you know, is this dangerous? What can I expect? That kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think that the, always want to start with the risk of infection, right? So mm -hmm. these needles are super thin. It's actually been shown that they can only push about 660 units of staff into the skin. And it takes, it's suggested that it takes about 7.5 million staff cells or staff units to cause a staph infection. So, you know, because of that, there's virtually no risk of infection. Now we will still use gloves. We will still use alcohol, but it's honestly just for show, just to make the patient feel more comfortable. Because when you do that, when you take an alcohol pad, you're pretty much just pushing dirt around. Most of the bacteria is actually underneath the skin, but we do it anyways. And, um, you know, that's something I will tell the patient about. And usually that makes them feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, what else? The, the most serious complication is, is a, a pneumothorax. So that's actually sticking a needle in someone's lung and collapsing it. Um, the, the, the statistically the rate of incident is less than 0.1%. Um, but you need to be careful. You need to know what you're doing. You need to know your anatomy. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people don't realize that the apex of the lung actually goes one thumb width above the clavicle. So if you're not familiar with that, just, just don't do it. Just like any other treatment in the clinic, you know, if you might hurt someone, err on the side of caution, don't do it or have one of your colleagues do it instead, that kind of thing. Um, let's see, internal organs. Um, I, 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 there's been cases in the literature of people hitting kidneys. I can imagine that that probably hurts really, really bad. Um, but if you compare that to uh, the size of the needle that's done to do a biopsy, those needles are eight times thicker than a dry needle. So you're not going to kill your patient. You're not going to cause any serious kidney damage. You'll, you'll definitely get sued and you could, you know, have yeah. your license, you know, revoked or suspended, but it's pretty safe on the grand scheme of things. As long as again, know your anatomy. Um, doesn't hurt. There's not a lot. Well, uh, I, I take that back. Some places are more uncomfortable than others. Yeah. It's not, it's not very painful. There's not a lot of stick pain with it, but oftentimes what patients do feel is like a cramping, achiness, a warmth. That's actually a good thing. That's actually, we tend to find that people have a better result when they get that. Not, not mandatory. Uh, sometimes patients will get a vasovagal response and that's basically like a quick drop in their blood pressure where they feel like they're going to pass out. They get sweaty, that kind of thing. And that's why especially the first time we needle somebody, we always have them laying down because that way, if they do go out, you can just take the needles out really quick, you know, get their feet up, give them something to drink. Same thing that happens if you've ever passed out donating blood. Um, mm -hmm. Same exact, same exact uh, issue there. And that's kind of, that's kind of pretty much it um, in a nutshell about safety. Yeah. It seems like the, the safety concerns are, um, they're more just patient perceived because of the idea of it, not actually, uh, you know, issues in terms of, you know, document or in the literature. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's needles, it's needles right. going into your skin down to your bone. I mean, I get it. You know, I can see why people be sketched out about it, but you know, usually once they get it done the first time, they're good to go. Yeah. I'm glad that we're, um, we're able to talk about that, man. Um, any, any other thoughts? I know you have a lot of experience in this area. So if there's anything you want to touch on, man. Well, um, what do you guys learn about trigger points in school right now? Cause there's some debate. That's kind of a hot debate about whether or not they actually exist. Yeah, I think for the most part, we are getting um, the stance that most of our professors are taking is that they do exist. There is some literature to, uh, you know, through either, you know, diagnostic ultrasound or, you know, in terms of like blood draws that do kind of tend to support the idea that they do exist. And that seems to be the stance that that most are taking. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's kind of our stance on it in the clinic. We, we do believe they exist. There's some therapists that are just like a hard no. You know, we don't even need to waste time trying to palpate these things because they don't exist. But, um, 
you know, essentially there's some pretty decent research on that. Like you alluded to with the uh, ultrasound studies and the blood draws. I, and I think the reason why people have so much of a problem with it is because the diagnostic criteria is pretty weak. It's basically if I squeeze your trap, does that hurt? If the answer is yes, then you follow it up with, is that the pain you're here to see me for? If the answer is yes, then that's a trigger point. But if you, if you break that down, um, you, the, it kind of starts with the SICDAR study and that's where he did the diagnostic ultrasound. So he found those areas of the patient's reported familiar pain, did ultrasound over it, found increased spontaneous electrical activity. That's what he actually saw. Um, and maybe that's what we should start calling it as SEA instead of trigger points. I might help with some of that debate. Um, mm -hmm. And then JP Shaw, he's another researcher. He basically took Sikdar's work. He went to those same sites with the ultrasound and he drew blood. And what he found is that in those areas compared to the contralateral side, compared to the sides that were asymptomatic, he found increased concentrations of inflammatory mediators, basically found acidosis to confirm it. Um, so I think that's pretty legit. I mean, we talk about evidence-based practice. There's, there's pretty good evidence for the existence of trigger points. And, you know, anecdotally, when you hit those trigger points, those latent trigger points, people get those twitch responses. Uh, Gray Cook says it's kind of like hitting the reset button. Uh, yep. um, basically, you know, it contractually hard and it relaxes. People feel better. And, you know, dry needling is probably, I, I'd say it's the one treatment where we get the most intracessional change. You know, we can, we can get, make a quick result in one session, not for everybody. It's hard to predict who's going to be a strong responder and who is not going to respond at all. But for the most part, people do get a quick result. And that's another thing too, is that, you know, we're not going to do it a million times to see if it works. We should get a result after one treatment. If we don't, we're not going to waste more time on all follow-up sessions. Yep. And don't, and I know you guys kind of have a clinic policy, like how long um, do you go in between uh, these treatment sessions? Should you decide, yes, I do want to do another kneeling session with this person. How long are you going to wait before you do it again? roughly a week. So, you know, f five, five to seven days in between. Um, and that's just basically because you want to give the body a chance to heal from the initial treatment. It's, it, 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 it's for the most part, it's not going to cause very much trauma to the tissues, but if you are doing some really aggressive, like periosteal pecking, some people are going to bruise more than others. You do want to give that chance, a, a chance to heal before you start sticking needles in it again. Awesome, dude. Yeah, the intercessional change that you spoke of, it, it's pretty impressive. The, the person, especially if you talk about plantar fasciitis, I know that seems to be one that we keep talking about, but somebody coming in with that, and then the moment they get off the table, that first step, they might be a little hesitant, but then they're, you, know, you can just see the look on their face like, wow, like I can already start you know, seeing and feeling some relief, um, you know, and then time to load it. So um, I thought uh, I, you know, it was great seeing that, man. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually submitted a, a I studied the JOSBT. I, I sent it back. I got to make some edits, but you know, fingers crossed. I'll get that one published soon. <laughs> Hopefully within the next year or so. If I can slow yeah. down at the clinic. Oh yeah. That'd be, would that be article number one, getting it out there? That will be article number one. Nice. If, First if of gets, hopefully if many. It's accepted, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know you're going to be on, on ours. Hopefully we can get, uh, you know, our BFR study published one day, one day. So, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully there's article number two coming into works too. Absolutely. Well, Josh, uh, did, did you have any other, anything else you wanted to go over? No, I thought it was great, man. I really appreciate you going into a lot of the anecdotal stuff. I know I'm still new on it. I can repeat what a lot of the literature says, but it's, it's good to hear how it's really being used in clinic and the success that you're seeing. Awesome, man. Well, yeah. Um, like I said, if you, if you guys are looking for more information about it, you can always hit us up on Instagram, uh, send us a direct message, uh, Kineticor, Dr. Ma, that's the way to go. They're going to give you the best kind of holistic approach to dry needle and how to incorporate the rest of your treatment. And, uh, for the rest of you, if you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. That's what bumps us up in the rankings. And don't forget that this is the last week to register for the upcoming Fitness Athlete Live Weekend Seminar. That's with Mitch Babcock, Ryan Smith, and Zach Long. It's going to be at Carolina CrossFit. It's going to be a great weekend. The link to register for that is in the show notes. 
if you want to find us, you can look us up at betterfasterpodcast.com or at betterfasterpodcast. You can find Josh at carolinaperformancetraining.com or at cpt underscore strength. And you can find me at vertexpt.com or at vertexpt. Hope you all have a great week and we'll be back next Monday. This episode is brought to you by Vertex PT Specialist. One patient per doctor of physical therapy per hour. Guaranteed. The best physical therapy ever. Check us out at vertexpt.com or on the gram at vertexpt.